Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Abby. And I'm Maya. And today we have a special episode all about alopecia. So the word alopecia basically just means hair loss, and it covers all types of hair loss. For example, it might just be on the scalp, it could be on the whole body, sometimes it can be permanent, or sometimes the hair might grow back. Yeah, thanks, Abby. And I think our guests will probably be able to say loads more about it as well. Absolutely. So we have some brilliant guests today, both from CAR and from Alopecia UK. Alopecia UK is a national charity which aims to improve the lives of those affected by alopecia. So in no particular order, we have Dr Fabio Zucchelli, formerly a senior research fellow here at CAR. Also from CAR is Dr Kerry Montgomery. Kerry is now a research fellow, but previously worked with Alopecia UK as their psychological wellbeing lead. That's right. And finally, we have the CEO of Alopecia UK, Sue Schilling, who also has lived experience with alopecia herself. Brill. So I spoke to all three of our guests a couple of weeks ago. So let's get straight into the discussion. Welcome, Fabio, Kerry and Sue. Hi. Yes, thanks for having me. My name is Sue Schilling. I am the chief executive of Alopecia UK. For those that don't know, Alopecia UK is the only national charity working to improve the lives of children and adults experiencing alopecia and the families of those who are affected through our aims of support, awareness and research. Hi, I'm Kerry Montgomery and I'm a research fellow at the Centre for Appearance Research. Hi team, Uh, I'm Fabio Zucchelli. Um, I'm a senior lecturer at UE and was previously senior research fellow at CAR. Um, So I've been working in the area of kind of visible difference and alopecia for coming up about eight years now. Well, thanks. And yeah, welcome back, Fabio, because I know you've been on the podcast before. And obviously, welcome to Sue and Kerry, who are newbies to the podcast. So um, I guess it would be great if we could start with a quick overview of um, alopecia. I'm sure lots of our listeners will have an idea of what alopecia is, but a bit of an introduction to alopecia would be great. So I do a lot of talks at conferences with people who don't know anything about hair loss. So I always start by saying, in at its simplest term, Alopecia means hair loss. Um, And so it's a catch-all label. There are multiple types of alopecia, um, some of which are autoimmune in nature or inflammatory in in nature, some of which are genetic, um, and many of them present differently. Many of them are caused by physical um, responses in the body, and many we don't know what causes them. So it's sort of alopecia, a catch-all label for hair loss. Brilliant. Thanks, Sue. That's a really good, concise um, overview of alopecia. So obviously alopecia is a visible difference. And of course, we know on the podcast that having a visible difference can be associated with lots of outcomes such as lowered self-esteem or confidence, increased risk of um, symptoms of depression, anxiety, amongst other concerns. Is this the sort of thing that we might see with people who have alopecia? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
the psychological impact of hair loss is absolutely huge for many, many people because, of course, uh, we live in a society that is completely wrapped up in physical identity and hair is such a core attribute of that. So we look in the mirror every day, we go to the supermarket every day, we see shampoo ads, we see magazines, we see lots of gorgeous people swishing their hair and when we lose our hair, we're losing our place in society and our sense of identity in society often so yeah the psychological impact can be um, absolutely enormous it would be uh, remiss of me not to also shout that for many types of alopecia and certainly my type of alopecia alopecia areata there are physical symptoms as well I don't have hair anywhere on my body so I get cold temperature regulation is a real challenge for me on a hot day I'm super hot on a cold day I'm super cold I don't have any eyelashes. I spend more time in A&E with eye problems than many people. And I don't have any nasal hair. So if I've got a cold, it's really not nice to be around me. Yeah, really just to confirm that the, the research that's been done aligns to what, you know, what Sue has said. And I think they're actually... Uh, it's quite well established that um, the rates of depression and anxiety symptoms are around about three times more prevalent in children and adults, um, specifically with alopecia areata, which is what Sue was mentioning there, than the general population. Um, uh, this is from quite an up-to-date systematic review. Uh, so that's kind of like w- you know, what the headlines are. The, the reasons why yeah, everything Sue said in a sense of from, from the qualitative research. So when people have been asked about their experiences, it's things around disrupted identity, their experience being minimized, having to um, navigate difficult um, health care. And also the kind of unpredictability of um, the conditions for many people and having to manage expectations. I think that point you just called out, Fabio, about the difficult health care is something that at Alopecia UK we see talked about frequently in our community. There is still a, um, a, a representation in a large population of, of you know, the general populace that hair loss is just a cosmetic issue. And even pe- when people go to their GP, there is this sense of um, people being patted on the back and told to go away and you know find yourself a wig and off you go and you'll be all right in the world and little recognition of the wider complications of living um, with anxiety or depression or any kind of psychosocial impact has on somebody's life so um, that healthcare journey is not helpful to many people who are living with alopecia um, and, and especially when it is presenting as a visible difference out in the world. I think just what Sue was saying there about um, what, you know, how people experience uh, their, people's experiences when they see the GP. Um, and a lot of people feel that if you have hair loss and you're worried about how you look, that you can sometimes opt to wear a wig. But that isn't the end of the story. So for some people, wearing a wig isn't an option. It may be really uncomfortable. It can cause uh, problems with other skin conditions, such as eczema. And also, what we found in a study where we looked at people's social anxiety and wig, wig use is that people then can become anxious about wearing the wig and it being found and their hair loss being discovered. So, for example, if people go out on a windy day, their anxiety may be really high around the wig blowing off 
or it becoming uh, dislodged when people can see it. So then it's like I'm hiding my hair loss, but now I've got an anxiety about it being found out. So even for people who wear a wig, that isn't the end of their journey. That isn't the end of their anxiety. It can create another type of anxiety um, as well. So I think there's lots of things to consider around that. And and I think, Kerry, just to layer on top of that, that with wigs, you get what you spend. So if you are able to spend a lot of money and get a human hair wig, which is a four-figure investment, a cheap human hair wig currently costs about £1,000. A really high-end, good-quality one is about three to £5,000. Um, you know, you might be able to go into the world feeling that you look natural, but actually many people can't afford that kind of investment. And there are some really good quality synthetic wigs, but if you can't afford to get them and get them frequently, you probably, those anxiety levels about do I stand up, am I more visible, are people looking at me and thinking, God, she's a bit wiggy, or he's a bit wiggy. I mean, let's get on to the discussion about camouflage and men. Um I think they're a little bit harder. Thanks. That's such a nice demonstration of how complex a lot of these things are that maybe you don't really realise when you first look at something like wig use. So I know we sort of mentioned the words alopecia areata. So I was wondering if, um, just for our listeners' sake, who might not know the difference in different types of alopecia, if anyone could give a bit of a definition of um, a couple of the most common types of alopecia. So the most common form of alopecia that you see when you're walking around the street is um, pattern baldness, androgenetic alopecia. And it's really common in men and society seems to accept um, that men will get, some men will get male pattern baldness. I'm not suggesting that's easy, but I would argue that that's the most common. Um, And outside of that, I'm not sure that we really know which is the most prevalent because there's not enough studies on it. It is certainly fashionable at the moment for researchers to and pharmaceutical companies to be looking at alopecia areata because there are new treatments coming down, um, a pharmaceutical, a medicalized treatment options for the first time ever. Um, but you could argue, and, and I don't know if this is true or not, so I reserve the right to be slightly wrong, but you could argue that um, telogen effluvium, which is essentially a shed, a more even shedding of hair across the body, uh, across the scalp, um, might be more prevalent, but actually we don't know the answer. We don't know because people might not go to their GP. Um, what we do know from a study that was um, published a couple of years ago a big population-based study of over 4 million GP records that um, a a population about the size of the city of uh, Sheffield will have alopecia areata at any time in the UK. Um, But we don't really know um, what that statistic looks like for any of the other forms of alopecia because the research just isn't there. Thanks, Sue. Um, I think that kind of segues quite nicely into maybe talking about some of that research. Um, so I wanted to move on to talk about some of the work that has been done, well, with you guys, um, also with some members of CAR more widely. Um, so, Fabia, I was wondering if we could move on to talk about your paper, um, Patients' Experiences of Primary Healthcare and Dermatology Provision for Alopecia. Sure. And I think this ties in really neatly to what Sue was saying and Kerry about many people's experience um 
navigating healthcare system and not feeling like they're being taken seriously and um, almost kind of dismissed. So Alopecia UK actually themselves, um, so this was, so Sue's predecessor, Jen Chambers um, and Amy Johnson, who's still at Alopecia UK, conducted a survey and I think they reached um, just under 300 people in 2019, so pre-pandemic, with various forms of alopecia, just to work out really what it was like going through the healthcare system and focused mainly on primary care, so GPs or family doctors, um, and then going through to dermatology. Uh, looked at satisfaction ratings and also why they gave those ratings. Overall, a sort of mild dissatisfaction to neutral ratings for people's experiences of GP consultations and then more neutral from dermatology. That's probably partly explained at least by the fact that dermatologists are likely to have um, significantly more knowledge and awareness about alopecia areata um, and the other conditions uh, than the GPs. Um, But across the board, really, our content analysis of people's answers, their kind of written responses, found that actually it wasn't always necessarily people's knowledge or awareness of the um, condition that was the issue. It was the interactions and the quality of the interaction. So a lot of the time people attributed the kind of soft skills. So the idea of being taken seriously and being um, a kind of empathic um, towards people um, was actually really important in the quality of their experience and the outcomes. So essentially it's about medical professionals being aware of the potential impact that their consultation can have for the person, whether positively or negatively. So for example, if someone's told by a medic that there's a chance that their hair may never regrow and if that's shared sensitively then for a lot of people that can be a part of helping them to manage their expectations whereas if it's said very bluntly matter-of-factly then it can have it can be taken as being quite callous and uncaring. I I really identify with that Fabio and it's a it's something we hear all the time in the Facebook groups because of course there are a group of people in the alopecia community who are desperate for treatment they're desperate to be fixed and I do that with those funny bunny ear in the air things in inverted commas they're 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 desperate to be fixed and then there are other people in the alopecia community um, who are really focused on living well with a visible difference And, and at alopecia UK we feel that we've got two hats one is to help people um, get access to the treatment pathways that they deserve they're a patient in the UK and the other one is to help them live well and with confidence um, despite having a visible difference. And I think um, following on from what Sue was saying um, as somebody who worked for Alopecia UK for a number of years as um, the psychological well-being lead I think it is important that we have we had that balance. We have that balance in the charity because for some people, treatment is about choice. So when people lose their hair, then it, that isn't a choice. That's something that's happening to them. So wanting to have the hair back it is something where that gives them power. They, they want to take that power back. And it's about wanting to 
fit in and feel like others. So we're not asking, you know, when we're asking people to provide uh, money for the NHS services, to provide wigs and to provide treatments, we're not asking people to give them something extra. We're asking them to give them back what they lost. And I think that's the really important part of it is that sometimes people will want treatment to take control of the situation. And what we as a charity, what Alopecia UK really do very well is trying to help people on that journey so that they're not going down the route of snake oils and things that don't that aren't going to work. Absolutely. Thank you. I think that's yeah, that's such an important point about the choice. Um and yeah, mentioning snake oils there. Um, I know I had a note to maybe talk about some um, myths or stigmas or misconceptions that are associated with alopecia. So um, maybe now's a good time to talk about some of those, do a bit of a myth busting section. So I spend, I mentioned earlier that I do these talks and I do a section on, you know, what are the myths that people have about alopecia? And the first one is that it's just hair. Because as, because of everything we discussed earlier, that it's also wrapped up in your identity and there are physical reasons for the hair on our body, um, it is not just hair. But actually there's some research done by um, another charity in the Appearance Collective that shows that 7 out of 10 people in the general population will look at somebody with a visible difference and make some assumptions about their quality of life, how much fun they are, how successful they are. And so that means that losing our hair and looking different isn't just hair. It, it interacts with every other part of our life and how other people perceive us. Uh, and that's a really important thing. Um, so that that. It's just hair is a really big one. That's a complete myth. Um, there is a popular view that men should not be impacted by alopecia. That's just utter rubbish. And I'm hoping that we can coax Fabio um, to talk about his work and his men project, because we know that that is just complete pie in the sky. We see as many men in distress as we see women in distress as a result of this enforced change upon them. Um, and then I could go off on all sorts of tangents. I've been bald for eight years. I still get asked at least once a month how my treatment is going because there are assumptions that I have cancer. And you know, all of those things mean that you start to have to build this narrative for yourself about what stories you're going to tell when you get put on the spot or when you feel that you're put on the spot. Um, there are these ideas that you must be really stressed out of your eyeballs and that you've somehow done this to yourself. And with all of those ideas that you've somehow done this to yourself comes with the, the feelings of doubt and shame that somehow you're responsible for all of this. So... God, there are so many rabbit holes we could go down, Abby, but maybe this is a maybe this is a good point to segue into Fabio, because if I could get one message over today that that gender equality is a really important thing in this story, then that would be really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Fabio, it'd be great to hear some of your research about men in this area. I know that hair is obviously something that's um, affected or it's very different it can mean mean very different things, can't it, depending on gender? Sure. And yeah, I think it's a really important 
point to note that from the quantitative kind of population type research in the past, some of it has shown that um, overall, on average, women are more affected psychologically and psychosocially than men. But there are all kinds of um, methodological reasons why men's experiences from those population um, studies may be minimised, um, including um, some of the, the kind of um, self-presentation and masculine norms, uh, meaning men tend to score themselves lower um, on distress and self-report. So it was really important, we thought, to actually just speak with men. Alongside a, a larger study that we did uh, that included men with androgenetic alopecia, so male band baldness, we also did an interview study uh, with around 18 men, I think it was, uh, who have alopecia areata again. And really, some of those themes came up again. So feeling unrecognised, and there was a gendered influence, I think, with that because of the, the assumptions that Sue has already alluded to. Isolated, self-conscious about the appearance, and really that's within the context of a kind of culture and society where there's minimal understanding or indeed representation of men with alopecia. And there is, as you say, a really important gendered aspect to this. And this is just, I think, something for anyone supporting people with alopecia to bear in mind is that these masculine norms that permeate through culture, that uh, champion stoicism and self-reliance, so when the men spoke to us about kind of comparing themselves, their experiences to women with alopecia, even they, they conveyed this message that it's harder for women. But they also acknowledged that that assumption held generally and themselves has this kind of paradoxical effect where it actually minimises their own experiences more and means that they don't feel like they have permission to feel all of these intense you know, feelings and distress that they do experience so there's kind of a silencing that's occurring there and also I think the the options available for men in terms of uh, and I think this was something that Sue mentioned at the start for camouflage and aesthetic techniques um, things like for example wigs and microblading are predominantly marketed to women historically so I think there are a lot of men out there who don't feel like there's anything for them out there to, to manage their appearance. The other aspect, which again is something that I think Sue's alluded to around the kind of intersection between minoritized status, whether that's ethnicity or sexual state, uh, sexual orientation. There's a real, from the men that we spoke with who um, were from a minoritized um, ethnic group or um, sexual minority group, they really described a compounded sense of difference. So already feeling and living um, with a history of stigma and discrimination in some cases and this added sense of difference and just how this can actually re-traumatise people. And, and, and that final bit that you mentioned there, Fabio, about people from minoritised ethnicities is really important. And I know we've spent a lot of time today focusing on alopecia areata, and that's because that's where the most research is. But what we know about alopecia areata is that it's more prevalent in non-white populations, and it's three times more prevalent in South Asian communities. So uh, communities that already, you know, back to that very first conversation we had about treatment pathways, communities 
that um, already have a harder time getting um, access to the right care, where I, I looked at a paper that said non-white communities in the UK um, feel that they're not getting as much care either through institutional racism or lack of understanding about what options are available to them. So if that's the general view, it feels reasonable to me to say that that might also be true for people with alopecia who are not white and because we know our condition is more prevalent in South Asian communities. You know, as I look to the future and I think about what our charity needs to do, well, I really want to understand what is truly happening for South Asian people who have got alopecia. What don't I know so that I can help let support them in the ways that they want to be supported? May I ask a question, Fabio? In your men's study, did you do any ask any questions around intimacy? That's a really good question. The main theme that relates to exactly what you're just describing there was around attractiveness, which obviously ties in with intimacy. I think that intimacy uh, was probably um, alluded to and implicit in what a lot of the men were talking about. And for one reason or another, I think it, intimacy itself in terms of whether it's physical intimacy and romantic intimacy didn't come to the surface. But certainly that idea of body hair and its association and masculinity was quite key because the the idea, for example, with pattern baldness that you may in certain instances be able to kind of offset um, scalp hair loss through, for example, through growing beards um, and having body hair. It's important to note as well in the research that male pattern baldness, people do feel like their attractiveness is affected and their self-perception of attractiveness. And often it can um, be related to feeling older or being um, interpreted as as looking older than than you are. And it's actually the opposite, a bit like you were saying there with alopecia areata, that men, and we did speak with a, a couple of younger men in their 20s as well, their experiences were feeling almost um, you know, pre-adolescence and not having that kind of signal of virility, I suppose, that comes, comes from body hair. Thank you. Really interesting. That is really interesting. And um, I was wondering as well about maybe a slightly different impact for men in the study who were from sexual minority groups. I think we only really had the important signal from that study, which was speaking with a couple of men who talked about, I suppose, the just the prominent and enhanced um, status and prominence of appearance within gay culture. And this is kind of known across the body image um, literature. And so it would make sense that with appearance being particularly central and and focused within gay culture at least in the UK that it's going to be that hair loss is going to have a more significant effect on one's sense of attractiveness and and place within society and so definitely watch this space because this is a research study that um that I'm looking to conduct um across the whole gamut of visible differences uh, and men who are um, gay or bisexual and um, or other sexual orientation Great. I'll really look forward to hearing more about that. It sounds like that whole men's study, then you've got some really interesting and valuable 
leads from it into a few different more specific groups um so yeah that's really interesting so yeah thank you for sharing that um so following on from the men's research what we wanted to do with that with those findings was to um, understand more about their support needs and what would be useful so as part of the charity and Alopecia UK used the findings um, and the recommendations from the research to uh, create a new section of the website. So men had said that they didn't feel that they really identified with some of the content um, on the website as it was. So we we created a new men's section to that where uh, we included blogs that were written by men for men, And we also used some funding to put towards a video um, that we used, which was men talking about their own experiences of having alopecia, which definitely mirrored a lot of the findings from Fabio's study. Um, And it is a really lovely little video where they're talking about their experiences um, and the types of difficulties and things that could come up, come up and what experiences were shared within that. Um, there was some discussions around whether uh, male-only spaces where they could discuss um, difficulties in a, in a sort of separate space to women. Uh, but when that's been offered, the uptake has been really very low on that so when we looked at it as part of the charity it people weren't coming forward so in terms of what we offered and what we did that that wasn't something that got taken forward at that point but definitely with the blogs and the video and we also expanded on treatment options uh for men so that was things like writing we got some professionals to help us write materials on things like microblading that were directed at men because a lot of the material and a lot of the pictures that are used when talking about eyebrows was very much pictures of women and how it looked on women whereas when professionals are microblading for men they out they, they use a very different technique because men's brows obviously look different to women's um for the most part um so it was things like that to sort of say these are options that are available um but perhaps you need to go to somebody that you know has worked with men and has got a portfolio of work with men uh before so it was just a little more um thought around what men were wanting and looking for in regards to that video that you made, I'll um, put a link to that in the show notes. And I also just wanted to touch on the microblading. Um, I think when I'm listening to you talking about the um, the sort of, I, would you call them kind of like, I guess they would be cosmetic procedures, wouldn't they, that kind of um, imitate hair? I think even the word cosmetic procedure, it just screams women to me um I guess it's just like the gender roles isn't it um so I guess even like in the language um I think um, that's why we use things like microblading and we don't so um we try and steer away from the word cosmetic mm. and when we're talking about them as options we talk about them as sort of camouflage options 
um, yeah. eyebrow options as opposed to saying like the cosmetic procedures because the other way that some people refer to things like microblading is um, semi-permanent makeup and things like that and obviously there are other ways of describing things that make it more gender gender neutral absolutely and I think especially when you're already finding this tension about not tension but difficulty in engaging men in the first place mm-hmm. to then use any of that kind of language is going to be so um off-putting isn't it yeah. so yeah I can empathize I can start to empathize with the struggles so time to talk about some new research so I wondered if we could talk a bit about the establishing the financial burden of alopecia areata and its predictors I mean I could jump in to start with to say a little bit about why we decided to um, conduct the research um, that the paper is based on so we um Alopecia UK in collaboration with CAR decided that we wanted to know a bit more about the socioeconomic burden of alopecia and understand it and when uh, Pfizer put out a call for that we decided that we were in a really good position um, to conduct that research and to look into it so that we could help people uh, by understanding the situation a little bit more. So The research itself was to look at not only the psychological impact of alopecia areata, but also the impact on people socially and economically. So that's things like uh, the impact on going to work or the impact on buying wigs, because we know anecdotally that people will tell us they spend thousands of pounds on wigs or treatments or shampoos or vitamins or going to see private dermatologists or trichologists and we know we know from people that contact alopecia uk that that puts a massive burden on a family so if it's a child the parents will often use savings to pay for things if it's an adult um, you know they'll often forgo family holidays or trips out so that they can afford to buy the things that they need or to go for their um treatment so it was really important to understand you know, get a bit more of an idea of the impact that it was having on families, which was why we decided to to look at this. And I'll invite Fabio to talk a bit more about the study itself. Absolutely. So, yeah, just to be clear, Kerry won the funding and was the principal investigator. Um, so we at CAR worked with Alopecia UK throughout, really, and we had a lot of um, people with alopecia um who kind of contributed to the design of the study to figure out what it was we needed to establish. So, yeah, I think this was probably one of those instances of research where it was pretty well known within the field of alopecia that people were spending a lot of money on a yearly basis uh, for a long time on their condition to manage manage alopecia. Uh, We just hadn't established it. So there was no rigorous research that gave clear numbers on how much people were spending and the impact it was having on people's lives. So that was really what we needed to dig into. I think we surveyed over 800 adults with alopecia areata. Again, that was the group for whom we were funded. And should note, there was mostly white women in the group. And I think on average, they'd lived with alopecia for around 10 years or so. One headline was that people spent around 3% of their income 
on managing their condition. And just to give it a context, that doesn't sound like much, but that's about a third of what people are currently spending on their energy bills. So it's actually quite a significant outlay. The biggest spend was on wigs, perhaps unsurprisingly, especially in light of the the um, predominantly female um, sample. I think there was a median spend of around £700 per year for women on wigs. So that's that's annual. That's interesting, tying in with what Sue was talking about earlier, where actually to, to spend on um, you know high quality human hair wigs, you're looking at you know £1,000 plus. I think one really important finding was that lower income actually statistically predicted higher spend as a percentage of income um, on managing alopecia. So that really just suggests that those with a low income, so um, less fewer means overall, actually spend comparable amounts of money on um, on managing their condition and wearing wigs. So that really supports the idea that many people not all people clearly consider wigs as a real necessity and actually just further kind of provide support for the NHS charter for best practice of NHS uh, wig provision that Alopecia UK have been championing and, and pushing. I think one of the interesting findings as well around what men were spending money on, so obviously their percentage was much lower on things like wigs but they did seem to spend comparable on um, things like private dermatology appointments. So when so they were looking for, it, it felt like there was a very maybe solution-focused spending habit. So let's go and have um, a private dermatology appointment so that we can, you know, get the solutions. Um, that seemed to be where the majority of men's money were being spent. And I think it's really important from a practical sense to for me to mention that the studies that we've talked about today so far, the, the, the idea of understanding what's the social economic impact with the financial burden study and the men's study, not only do they empower Alopecia UK to amend its support services and to be uh, better at um, understanding what our community want and need, but it also empowers us to sit at the very formal tables that we've been sitting at for the last 12 months and speak more impactfully about the full impact of this disease on the quality of life of people who have got alopecia. Um, alopecia UK are the voice of the patient at NICE, who are the gatekeeper for medicalised treatments. And um, you know, so a big part of our storytelling over the last two years that we've been sitting at the nice table has been about the psychosocial impact of living with alopecia. So these studies that Carl have been fundamental in have also formed a big part of our case when we sat at those very formal tables fighting for the rights of patients to have that medicalised treatment that many people crave. I think that... And that's what Sue's saying is that, that you know, Alopecia UK rightly sit at those tables because what we're finding is the financial burden is being met 
by the individual. So whereby when people are making decisions, um, you know, the NHS are making decisions about spending and they're saying, well, actually, we don't spend that much at the moment. That's because the spending is happening to the individual. The individual is spending that much, but you're not. So we're trying to remove that burden from families because there is going to be an impact. And in the study, we found that only a quarter of people that were sampled that were spending money could readily afford to spend money. So that means the rest of people were going and spending money, uh, were borrowing money, were using credit cards, with families were paying for it. You know, some people that we've spoken to, they'll ask for wigs for Christmas or for birthdays because that's what they they want and they can't really afford that much themselves. And from what Fabio was saying about the median spend on things like wigs being around 700, when we looked at what people were spending as a range on everything, on all products, we were finding that the range was something that Fabio might have to help me with this. It was really, for really low, for like a couple of pounds, right the way up to sort of £20,000 a year. And that was the range of spending that we we were managing um, and people say, well, how was it getting to twelve? How is this such a range? But if you consider that some people are now going to see private dermatologists, private blood tests, and then paying for um, treatments like jack inhibitors privately, it's very easy to see how that money is being spent. So we have to consider the the impact of that that spending, and it's not being met by the NHS and it's been met by the individual and their families. I feel like it's really important to call out right now that what we've just talked about sounds like people are looking for luxury products. You know, it sounds like actually they're looking for something to, um, you know, make them feel a little bit nicer so that they can, you know, just feel a little bit nicer. But actually what we know is that people who wear wigs uh, for most of their time, wear them 70% of their waking time, which means they're not going to work if they haven't got a wig. They're not going to education if they haven't got a wig. Their life outcomes are diminished if they haven't got a wig. So it does, you know, I can really understand why some people see this or to sit as a cosmetic problem, but it's just not because what we're really talking about is people having a poor quality life and uh, diminished life outcomes as a result of a visible difference that some people are unable to come to terms with. It's really great that you've got these research studies that kind of are covering lots of angles for you so that when you go to sit at those tables, you've got such a good backing of, yeah, a wide range of it. And of course, that collaboration with CAR has been really vital. And Fabio, you've even been to one of our events to try and bring participants onto one of your studies. Um, do you want yeah. to say more about that? Sounds good. Yeah. Yes, thank you. So, um, it was, well, just amazing to be there at the event, um, just to be with so many people who are so passionate and uh, kind of have so much experiences to share and so willing to share. So really the purpose of the study that's actually funded by Alopecia UK is to up the standards really of support um, for people with alopecia. And again, the, the funding was specifically for alopecia areata. 
So the study has been a kind of modified consensus study, which means we're trying to build a consensus to build up to a kind of best practice guidance. And they are for anyone involved in supporting people with alopecia areata. So that's GPs, dermatologists, trained peer supporters, for example, those at Alopecia UK, mental health professionals and trichologists. This is really just looking at some of the the key things that cut across all of those different disciplines when working with people with alopecia just to yeah, promote their well-being so we've involved about 50 experts and that includes about half of whom who are experts by lived experience to get their perspectives you know what are the really important considerations um when supporting people with alopecia areata so some of the items that have ended up being shortlisted into the ultimate guidance through a a series of rounds um, of of research is to help people tolerate the uncertainty of their condition in terms of its um, how it progresses. So that might include helping people to prepare themselves emotionally for different outcomes and also practically so to consider different ways of managing um, hair loss based on different possible outcomes. Another one was being aware, so the supporter or the health professional, being aware of their own assumptions about appearance and beauty ideals so that they don't unknowingly push those on or judge individuals according to those. So there's just a couple of examples and these are these are guidance um, that are going to be uh, adapted for each of those support roles and we're going to be trying to get them out there over this next year to really just um, amplify those messages and ensure that uh, yeah, everyone involved supporting with people alopecia understands the the key considerations um, of what it's like, um, and and a bit like I said earlier, just how much impact they can have on the individual. I, I can't wait to get the debrief from you, Fabio, about like mm. the output of that. I can't wait to get the debrief too. You'll have to come back <laughs> onto the podcast again to talk about it. Um, thank you. That sounds amazing. And I think we've just got time for one more question today. And that's the most important question of them all, <laughs> which is the cake question. <laughs> um, so we can't let you go without asking um, what cake, whether baked or bought or maybe a family member could bake one for you if you've got a, um, someone who's gifted in your family um so what cake would you bring for us to share at Carl weekly if you were going to come down on a thursday morning should we start with fabio i know you have bought cake before yes this is making me feel very guilty because i'm pretty sure over the eight years i've i've uh i've posted i've i've not brought as many cakes as i should have done um but yeah not being a master uh, baker i definitely um yeah feel I, i've struggled in comparison to a lot of you but yeah i think uh, i can do one sort of chocolate pear and banana cake which is just a kind of one giant soggy bottom which is the way i like it and uh yeah you get two of your five a day in there as well damn you started off by saying that you weren't a very good baker and then that sounds amazing so yeah. <laughs> well <laughs> it's great you, you know you don't have to worry about over baking because it's all just a squidgy mess nice Squidgy mess sounds good to me. <laughs> what about you, Sue? Oh, God, I feel really awful now. I have no baking skills at all, <laughs> but I would like to have baking skills. So I would absolutely bring lemon drizzle cake. I, um, It's my absolute favourite cake in the world. 
I would currently try and buy it from a farm shop so it felt more homemade. I might even take it out of its wrapper and squish it in a container a little bit so it looks homemade. Um, I also have a lemon tree that's got lemon growing on it. And so at some, that's my little goal, to make my own lemon drizzle cake with my own homegrown lemons. So I'd bring that. Wow, that sounds very wholesome. And um, yeah, lemon drizzle is a very popular one with car, I think. So yeah, that would go down well. Thanks. <laughs> and what about you, Kerry? Chocolate cake. Always. Always Straight chocolate up. cake. Straight yeah. Chocolate cake. You're a woman of my heart because I'm exactly the same. <laughs> um, okay, brilliant. So thank you so much for being guests on Appearance Matters podcast. I've loved having the chance to chat together all about alopecia um, and hear about this massive body of work that you've been doing so yeah i've really enjoyed having you on so thank you so much thank you so much for having me thank you abby thanks again to sue kerry and fabio for joining us on this month's episode it's so nice to have an episode fully dedicated just to one condition yeah especially when there's been so much great work for us to showcase Absolutely. And if anyone is interested in finding out more about Alopecia UK or reading the papers that we've talked about today, you'll find all the links in the bio. So that's all we've got time for today. As always, thank you for listening to Appearance Matters, a podcast. Please remember to share, subscribe, rate and review. Until next time. Bye. Bye.